and all of us exist a longing for community, for real, deep relationships. We desire to become known, to belong, to drop the facade and let others into our lives, in turn be invited into theirs. But being in close community with others isn't always easy. For some of us, we are simply too busy, cramming our lives with plans and activities that there is little to no room to form deep connections. We simply check the box of showing up and move on with the rest of our week, or forsake gathering altogether, relegating it to an optional part of our lives and discipleship to Jesus. For others, there exists hurt or painful previous experiences, leaving scars and anxieties about letting others into our lives to know us intimately. Wounded, we keep others at bay or never really engage authentically. Regardless of our experience, without community, without leaning into the tension that comes with intertwining our lives with those who may not be like us, without slowing down enough to build those roots, we will remain stunted and stagnant in our journey into becoming more like Jesus. As followers of Jesus, we are not merely a gathering of friends or like-minded Christians. Rather, we are called to transform into a new family. Our journey involves embracing the beautiful chaos of genuinely living life together, standing side by side in deeply rooted relationship with Jesus guiding us every step of the way. Well, good morning, everybody. How are you guys feeling today? You guys feeling all right? Good. Wonderful. Man, it's great to see all of you who are in the room. And of course, if you're joining us on live stream, we want to say uh, welcome to you. And if you're also uh, upstairs right now in our live stream venue, we all want to say hi to you as well. Thanks for joining us that way. And uh, just great to be together. Um, you can probably tell from the video that we just watched, we're actually in uh, the fourth part of a series that we're in right now that's called Community. And uh, if you're just joining with us in this series, basically, here's what we're talking about. Uh, we are talking about the absolutely critical, vital, essential part of our spiritual growth and of our spiritual health uh, that is biblical community. And basically, we've been saying in this series, we've been saying for those who follow Jesus, which of course, by the way, we know that maybe not everyone here today is a follower of Jesus. Some of you might still be investigating your faith, and we're so grateful that you're here. But we've been saying for those of us who follow Christ, that biblical community is an essential, critical, vital part of our spiritual growth and our spiritual health. And uh, it's actually interesting, as we've been talking over the past couple of weeks, I can just tell you that whenever I think of how important biblical community is in the life of a follower of Jesus, I can't help but always think of aspen trees, uh, which I know is exactly what most of you think too about aspen trees. You're like, what, what are you talking about? And maybe you guys have heard this before. I heard this years ago, and I just thought this was so cool. So there's a certain kind of aspen tree out west, I guess, that grows in kind of a unique way. And so these aspen trees, they actually grow in what's called a, an aspen grove or an aspen stand. And basically, it's a big collection of a bunch of individual trees. But what makes it so interesting and kind of makes it so unique is that all of these different trees that grow together share one common root system. And so they literally share kind of a common life together as they're interconnected underground. It's actually kind of fascinating. Uh, there's actually a really, really famous um, uh, aspen um, uh, stand or aspen grove that's actually called a uh, pando. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of this before, but it's actually considered the largest living organism on earth. It's actually in Utah. It's made up of over 47,000 individual trunks. It covers over 106 acres, and it has a root system, one giant root system that goes over 100 feet down into 
the ground. It's an absolutely incredible thing. And here's what I think is so cool about this. These aspen trees can grow very tall vertically, and they can also survive all kinds of harsh weather conditions because they share this root system together. So, so they're able to grow up vertically and they're able to survive harsh conditions because they are connected horizontally in a shared life together with the other trees that are in the grove. And I don't know about you, but when I heard that, I thought to myself, what an incredible example of what the Bible teaches about the necessity of biblical community. The Bible's gonna say in places like Ephesians chapter four, the way that each one of us who follow Jesus grow vertically in our relationship with God, the way that we're able to grow in Christ-likeness and even endure some of the, the difficulties in the, the storms that life has to throw at us is that we do that by also growing horizontally in our interconnectedness with each other. It's because we're rooted in a shared life together that we're able to grow in the way that God wants us to grow. In other words, all I'm trying to say is the Bible's gonna tell us that Christianity is not a solo sport. It's intended to be lived together. It's not just part of how we grow. It's actually, for those of us who follow Jesus, it's actually part of our identity for those of us who follow Christ. So that's what we've been talking about in this series. We've been talking about the essential, vital role of biblical community in our lives and in our growth and in our health. But here's the big question and kind of the question we've been thinking about in this series. We've been saying, okay, if biblical community is so essential to our spiritual growth and spiritual health, then what exactly is it that makes biblical community biblical, right? So that's the question we're talking about. In other words, we're saying, what is it that makes biblical community different than any other kind of community that you can find, right, out there that the, that, that the world has to offer? What makes biblical community biblical? And so in this series, we actually said that as we've looked at it, we've kind of reduced it down to nine irreducible minimums. We're saying, what makes biblical uh, community biblical? And we're looking at nine aspects, kind of nine irreducible minimums that make biblical community biblical. And you can actually see them right here in the graphic. Here's what we've been saying. We say biblical community, what makes it biblical? Well, biblical community is a community of siblings, is a community of learning, is a community of gathering, is a community of prayer, confession, generosity, discipleship, mission, and worship. And so each week in this series, we're taking one of those aspects and we're kind of double clicking on it and we're talking about it. So this is the fourth week of the series. So that brings us to this. Today, we're gonna to be talking about how biblical community is a community of prayer. That's what we're gonna be talking about today. Biblical community is a community of prayer. It's a community of prayer. Now, my guess is, that for many of you, when I say that today we're gonna to be talking about prayer and that we're gonna be talking about being a community of prayer, it's probably no surprise to you, right? Uh, we're in a church and you would expect that in a place like a church that we talk about prayer, right? That's not no surprise to any of us. And I don't really know uh, what goes through your mind when I say that today we're gonna to talk about prayer, but can I just say that for me, if you're anything like me, when I hear that we're talking about prayer, usually for me, the first emotion that I have is I usually, am, it's kind of met with a little bit of a tinge of guilt, when we're talking about prayer. I've told you guys this in the past before, and I'll just say it again. Whenever someone asks me about how my prayer life is going, I always feel like when the dentist asks me how my flossing is going. Like, I feel the same way. Like, I'm like, oh, I can explain, and it's not as good as I want it to be, and I've been trying, I promise, and I, I kind of want to do that. Uh, D.A. Carson's actually a famous theologian. I love what D.A. Carson said. He said, if you want to embarrass the average Christian, just ask them how their prayer life is going. And, uh, and I think that's true. And so I just want you to know that that is not my goal today. Okay, so my goal is not just to make you feel guilty about how you're not praying enough and make you feel bad about your prayer. That's not the goal. What I actually wanna do today is I actually wanna invite us to look at an aspect of prayer 
that quite honestly, I don't think that most of us intuitively and naturally think about. I actually wanna talk about a component of prayer that I think sometimes is neglected. And what is that? Well, here's what I wanna talk about. I wanna talk about praying together. I actually wanna talk about becoming a community of prayer. And here's why I think that's so important is because I think for a lot of us, maybe when we talk about prayer or when we read about prayer or when we, when we hear sermons about prayer, a lot of times what we, I think what we immediately and almost exclusively think about is we think about our private, individual, personal prayer life. I think for a lot of us, that's what we think about. So you think about the, your, your time that you pray in solitude. You think about maybe if some of you are pray, you like to write a prayer journal or you meditate in prayer, whatever that looks like. And it's usually personal and it's private. And by the way, of course, I would say that that's very important, right? Jesus had a personal, private, you know, prayer life. He definitely had that. And he instructed us to have a personal, individual, private prayer life for sure. But I'll tell you what's interesting. When you actually read through the Bible, and specifically when you read through the New Testament, you're actually going to see that most of the examples of prayer and most of the instructions about prayer that we have in the Bible are actually geared towards a community, that actually it has community in mind. In fact, let me just give you an example. Probably the most famous prayer in the Bible, and uh, my guess is that even if you're a person who didn't grow up in the church, you're familiar with this prayer. One of the most famous prayers was given by Jesus. It's what we call the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father. But did you guys ever think about that prayer? Did you ever think about what Jesus is instructing us to pray? Here's what Jesus says. He says, pray, look at this, our Father who art in heaven, give us our daily bread. Do you notice in this, the prayer that Jesus gives us, he's not instructing individuals. He actually is assuming a community. He's assuming that when we pray, that we're praying together as a spiritual family. And so, so many prayers in the Bible, so many examples and instructions to prayer are actually not just given to an individual, they're given to a community. They're given to a group of people who pray together. So what I wanna do with the rest of our time today is I actually wanna look at an example in the New Testament of how the early church practiced community prayer. And my hope is that this would not just be something that's interesting to you, My hope is that this is something that would be instructive, instructive to you and I, and especially for those of us who follow Jesus and are part of the Medina East Campus family. So the place I wanna look, I wanna invite you to grab your Bibles and why don't you turn with me to Acts chapter four. Okay, so that's where we're gonna go here together, Acts chapter four. So if you got your Bibles, open them up. If you have a Bible app on your phone, go ahead and open that up. If you do not own a physical copy of the Bible, um, there's some under the chairs and you can grab those, turn to page 885. And um, if you don't have a Bible at home, we want you to have a Bible. And so you can just take one of ours, take it home, make it a gift from us to you, read it, study it. We'd love for you to do that. So um, Acts chapter four is where we're gonna go. Now, as you're locating Acts chapter four, uh, let me just kind of reiterate this. I love that the Bible doesn't just tell us that we should pray. And I love that the Bible doesn't just tell us that Christians should pray together. But I love that the Bible actually gives us examples of the ways that we should pray and how and what the early Christians prayed for. Again, I think it's something that's very instructive to us. And I think we're gonna see that in this prayer today. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna read this whole section. So we're gonna read verse 23 down to verse 31. We're gonna see the corporate prayer, this community prayer of the early church. Then after we're done reading the whole section, we're gonna come back around and we'll make some observations, all right? So here we go. Acts chapter four, starting off in verse 23. It says this. It says, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and they reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. 
When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. So they pray to God. And what do they pray? Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea, and you made everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father, David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and your will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and to perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God boldly. All right, so this is God's word to us here today. And of course, like any passage of the Bible, there's so many different things that you could say about it. But for our sake, I actually just wanna invite you to observe with me five features of their prayer. So let me give you a quick roadmap of what we're gonna look at today. I want you to observe with me five features of community prayer, and specifically in this prayer. And here's what I wanna invite you to look at with me. First off, I want you to notice the priority of their prayer, the priority of their prayer. Then I want you to notice the harmony of their prayer. After that, I wanna talk about the theology of their prayer. Then I wanna look at the request of their prayer. And then finally, we'll talk about the result or what was, the, what was how did God answer their prayer? We'll look at those things together. So let's start at the top. And again, I, I, my, my hope is that what you see here is that this is not just something that we can observe about these people back in the first century, but this is also something that is instructive to you and to me as well. So first off, let's talk about the priority of their prayer, the priority of their prayer. So this is one of those passages, like pretty much all passages in the Bible, where the context is actually very, very important. So like, the question is this, what was it that caused these people to have this spontaneous prayer meeting, right? What was the impetus that caused them to say, we need to pray right now? And uh, actually, if you look back just a couple chapters, you'll see in Acts chapter three and Acts chapter four, it tells us the circumstance that led them to this prayer meeting. And I'll just kind of summarize it for you. Basically, here's what happens. The Bible says that there's these two guys, Peter and John. So Peter and John were disciples of Jesus. They were also leaders in the early church. And the Bible says that they were going to the temple one day to pray. And as they were going to the temple, the Bible says that there was a beggar who was begging for money. And the Bible actually tells us that this beggar was a man who was lame from birth, which meant he couldn't walk from the time that he was born. So as they pass by, this guy's begging for money, and Peter looks at him, and this is what Peter says to him in Acts chapter three. He says, silver or gold, I don't have. So in other words, I don't have any money. He says, but what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. And the Bible tells us that this man who is lame from birth gets up and he walks. It's a full-blown miracle. And of course, as you can imagine, when this happens, it attracts a whole lot of attention. And so people are coming from all around to see what happened. And so Peter and John use this as an opportunity to, to kind of preach a spontaneous sermon. So they preach this sermon. They start telling people about Jesus. Well, of course, not only does this attract attention, it also attracts some controversy. And the Bible tells us that the religious leaders catch wind of this. And by the way, the religious leaders happen to be the very same guys who were responsible for, responsible for crucifying Jesus, so these guys come, they arrest Peter and John for performing this miracle, and they start to interrogate Peter and John. And basically they say to him, they say to Peter and John, by what power or in what name did you do this? 
So basically, they start interrogating and said, hey, what power and what name did you perform this miracle? And Peter and John respond in a very bold way. And they say, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised. Well, as you can imagine, um, if you say the name Jesus to a group of guys who are responsible for crucifying Jesus, they're not real excited about that. And so they respond back to Peter and John and they say, do not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So basically they're like, stop talking about Jesus. And Peter and John once again come back and they say, which is right for us in God's eyes to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. So in other words, they're like, you need to shut up about Jesus. And they're like, with all due respect, no. And the Bible tells us that what happens in Acts chapter four is the religious leaders release Peter and John from prison and they release them from interrogation, at least for now. So that's the context. Now, by the time you get to verse 23, look what the Bible says. On their release, so release from what? From prison, release from interrogation. So what do Peter and John do? The Bible says, well, Peter and John, the first thing they do, notice this, is they went back to their own people. Now, this is interesting. The first thing they do is they don't run for the hills. The first thing they do is they don't run away. They don't skip town. The first thing they do is they actually go right back to their own people, which is what? Their church. They go back to their biblical community. They go back to their life group is what they do. So they gather their people together and what do they do? The Bible says, well, they start to report to them all that happened. They're like, listen, you gotta, we gotta tell you what happened. We were thrown in prison and there was, we healed this guy and it was crazy and they told us to stop talking about Jesus. Now, I want you just to imagine with me for a minute. Imagine that you are one of those Christians that's in that early church. Now, I just want you to imagine the amount of fear and anxiety that that may have caused you. I want you just to remember that this church, this group of Christians was probably, I don't know, a couple weeks old at this point. Um, they, had, uh, they had just become Christians themselves a couple of weeks maybe before this. They actually had witnessed and had seen Jesus crucified. So they knew all the grisly events that took place to Jesus. And now they're hearing that if they speak the name of Jesus, the same fate might await them. So I just want you to imagine the kind of fear and anxiety and uncertainty that these people were facing. So what is the first thing that this community does? What's the very first thing they do? Do they, do they somehow, do they start to organize an uprising? Do they start to hold a town hall meeting about how they're gonna protect themselves against the persecution that they're facing because of the leaders of the government system around them? Is that what they do? I want you to notice the first thing they do is honestly, their first response is oftentimes our last resort. The Bible says this, when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. The first thing they do is they're like, we gotta pray. We gotta, like, we gotta pray like now. Like we gotta start praying right now about what's going on. And like I said, their first response is oftentimes our last resort. I think these guys are a great example of what we see when we talk about a community that prioritizes prayer. They go to prayer and they go to prayer first. I'll tell you what's interesting. Not only do you see here in Acts chapter four, the priority of prayer, but when you go through the rest of the, of the book of Acts, you're gonna see that this was a church that prioritized prayer in just about everything. Now, this past week, I actually went through the book of Acts and I just surveyed the times that the early church prioritized prayer. And I'll just kind of give you a quick snapshot of what I found. So the early church got to get this. They prayed in times of waiting. 
So when, when they were supposed to wait, the Bible says they went immediately to prayer. They prayed when making important decisions. Whenever you see them making an important decision, the first thing they do is they pray about it. Uh, they prayed it as a regular part of their, of their corporate worship times. When they were gathered together, it was a regular part of their, their services. They prayed at scheduled hours of the day. So there were certain times that they had devoted to praying and to praying together. They prayed in times of crisis. Whenever there's a big crisis, the first thing they do is pray. They prayed when choosing and selecting missionaries, when selecting and appointing leaders. They prayed at certain dedicated spaces. There actually was spaces that were devoted to prayer. They prayed while they were in prison. They prayed while they were departing from each other. All I'm saying is you're gonna see that this was a community that prioritized prayer in all circumstances and all events. And you guys, I think for us, maybe just kind of practically speaking, I think this isn't just something that tells us something about them. I think this is also very instructive to those of us who follow Jesus. I think it reminds us that we should be people who prioritize prayer. We actually have a little saying around here at Grace Church at the Medina East Campus. You maybe have heard us talk about it before, but we talk often about the importance of kneeling first. There's actually a little phrase that we use. And for us, it's just a reminder that we wanna keep prayer as a priority. And there's a little question that we attach to it. We say, are we praying as a first response rather than a last resort? You know, I don't know about you guys, but I think a lot of times I have found that sometimes I can treat prayer as a last resort, right? I can, I can try to, I'm like, well, I tried everything I know how to do. I expended all my energy and all my resources trying to figure out the problem on my own, and, and I can't, so I guess the only thing left to do is to pray. And that's actually not what you see when you look in the New Testament. You're gonna see that this early church, they prayed for, it was their first response. It was not their last resort. I think very practically speaking, maybe something I would suggest, if you're a follower of Jesus in this room, and if, you, if you're someone who's part of the Medina East Campus, I might just suggest to us on this point that maybe we try to pursue adopting two phrases. There's two phrases, I think, that when we're together, what, here on the weekend, when we're in the cafe, when you're at your life group, or maybe when you're just with your family, I just wanna suggest to us and maybe even challenge us to try to adopt two phrases in our vernacular. Here's the first one. First one is this. Hey, let's pray about that right now. Let's pray about that right now. I think that that would be an awesome thing for us to adopt in, in, in when, when we're together. You know, I think sometimes it can be easy to, you know, when I'm talking, when we're talking with people to, to say, to hear about something that's going on in your life. And it's easy sometimes to say, oh, I'll pray about that. I'll pray about that. And I'll just be the first to admit, I don't know if you guys do this, but I'll just speak for myself. Uh, there are times when I'll tell people, hey, I'll pray for you about that. And I have great intentions and I have a terrible memory. And I'll walk away and I will totally forget to pray for the thing that you asked me to pray about. And some of you are like, have you, have you done that to me? And um, the answer is no, I did it to the person next to you, but not to you. And I would never do that. No, but it's, it's, I would hate to say it, but it's true. There's times that I'm like, I'm gonna pray for you and I totally forget to. So what if instead we said, hey, you know what? Let's pray about that right now. Let's talk to God about that right now. Rather than me saying, let me go pray for you in my individual time, what if I said, hey, why don't we pray about that together in this moment? I think it's a powerful thing. Uh, or how about this one? I think this is another good one. Hey, can we take a moment and thank God together? You know, I, the reason I think this is an important phrase is, I don't know, I don't know why it is, but a lot of times I feel like uh, prayer time, we, we oftentimes feel the need to pray when we hear about an emergency or we think about a challenge or we hear about a medical condition or an illness. We're oftentimes inclined to pray about those things, which by the way is right and good but I think that sometimes it's hard for us to remember to pray in all circumstances. And so when someone gets a new job or when something positive is happening in someone's life, sometimes it's awesome just to say, hey, you know what? Can we take a moment and can we just thank God for that? 
Can we just thank God that you got that job that we've been praying for? Can we just thank God and, and just to take a moment and pray together? So I think what you see in this passage is you see a community that prioritized prayer. And I think that's instructive to us. But not only is this a community that prayed as a priority, I want you to notice the second thing. I want you to notice the harmony of their prayer, the harmony of their prayer. And some of you might be reading that. You might be thinking, what exactly do you mean by harmony? It's actually interesting. I was, I was trying to figure out what the best word to explain what I was seeing in this passage was. And I landed on harmony. And I'll tell you why. I, I'm not um, a very musical person. I, I can't sing. I'm not a vocalist. Uh, but one of the things I love about, about good vocalists, like I love to watch the band up here, is I love when they sing harmony. I love that. It just is intriguing to me. I love when you hear people sing like four-part harmonies. Or if you guys have ever like, if you've ever went and you've seen like an orchestra, I love all the instruments that are playing in harmony. And I don't understand the physics of how harmony works. Some of you do. And uh, just, just so you know, I don't care enough to, you tell, for you to tell me after service. But the best that I understand, I'm just going to put that, I love you. I love you, but I just don't care. Um, but uh, I, the best that I understand how harmony works is you have diversity and unity. And so there's a diverse amount of sounds. There's a diverse amount of instruments. There's a diverse amount of tones and pitches. And yet they're synchronized on the same frequency. There's a synchronization. They're on the same wavelength in some way or another. And I actually think that's a really good picture of what you see happening with their prayer. Notice what the Bible says about their prayer. It says, when they heard this, they raised their voices, now notice this, together in prayer to God. They raised their voices together in, in prayer to God. Now, I don't think what that means, I don't think it means that all of a sudden everyone started praying out loud at the same time. I don't think that's what it means. That would have been very chaotic. Actually, it's interesting. The word together is a really fascinating word in the original language. In fact, let me just show it to you. It actually is a Greek word that comes from two words that are kind of put together. So the first word, the first Greek word, is actually the word homos, and it literally means to be the same or to be unified. And the second word is the word thumos, which means temperament or it means mind or heart. So literally, when the word says that they prayed together, it means that they were, it means this. It means they had the same mind. It means they were of one heart, of one mind, of one spirit. So this is not just like they were together, meaning they were physically in the same proximity. That was true, but it meant that actually they were on the same wavelength. They were on the same frequency. They were in agreement with each other. And so rather than just this being like one person praying and the rest of the people just closing their eyes and kind of just like tuning it out or just kind of drifting away or one person praying and everyone else is checking their fingers for hangnails or picking lint off of their shirt. Am I the only one who struggles in these ways, right? No, this is, this is people who are actively engaged in their mind and their heart in active agreement with what is being prayed. Can I just say, I, I, you guys, I believe on this point, I actually think that there's something to be said about praying out loud with other Christians. Actually, there's something, something to be said about praying with your voice. And what do I mean by that? I mean literally praying in the presence of other people who follow Jesus. Now, I know for some of you when I say that, that when I say I think, I think it's a valuable part of your spiritual growth, not just to pray by yourself in the quietness of your own heart, but to actually pray out loud in front of other people. I know for some of you, that is a huge intimidating step of faith. The thought of doing that, of actually praying out loud in front of other people, just absolutely terrifies you. And can I just, can I just say to you that if that's you, I can completely relate with that. I actually remember, um, some of you guys know a little bit of my story. I started following Jesus when I was 17. 
And I remember the first time I was asked to pray out loud in front of a group of people. And so I actually had a friend in my life. It was a kind of a mentor in my life. And uh, he actually was very wise. And he, um, he was anticipating there was going to be this Bible study. And he said, he, he came up to me, he said, hey, the Bible study is coming up. He said, after we're done with the Bible study, I want to ask you, would you be willing to pray for us at the end of the Bible study. And I was very thankful he didn't put me on the spot. He gave me some space and time to think about it. Uh, but I told him, I said, yeah, I said, I said, uh, I said yeah, I'm, I'm scared, but I'm, I'm willing to do it. And I immediately, after I agreed to pray, I immediately regretted it uh, because I just started to get scared. And I was like, I'm a new Christian. I don't know how to pray. I don't know if I'm saying the right thing. People are gonna judge what I'm saying and what they kind of thing. And I actually was so nervous that I, I actually uh, wrote out a prayer and I committed it to memory because I just didn't want to, I didn't want to screw it up. And so when it came time to pray, I was so nervous, you guys. It came time to pray. The first line that I, was, that I had memorized to say is I was going to say, let's bow our heads in prayer. Like, that was my big open, right? I was like, let's bow our, head, bow our heads in prayer. And, uh, and so when it came out, it actually came out like this. I said, all right, everyone, let's bow our hairs. And everyone just started laughing. And I was like, oh, I'm such a failure. And... Um, Here's a point that I'm trying to make, though, is, you know, I think it's easy sometimes. We think about praying out loud with other Christians. It's easy for us to make that into a performance. It's easy for us to think that, that we need to perform or we need to, somehow, we need to somehow impress people with our spirituality. But can I, just, can I just encourage you this way? If you're a person who's intimidated to pray out loud, can I just encourage you and release you from any sense of performance anxiety? Uh, the reason that we pray out loud is not because we're trying to impress anyone with our spirituality. It's not because you're trying to perform in any way. That's not it. Listen, praying with other Christians is a real gift that God has given us. And I think it's a critical step in your growth for those of us who follow Christ. So I wanna encourage you to do that. And actually, that leads me to the third thing that I wanna look at. I want you to look at the theology of their prayer. So the question is, why is it that they were able to have such a harmony in their prayer? Why is it they were able to be of the same mind in the same spirit when they prayed? And I think the reason is because they shared the same theology in their prayer. Um, now, of course, theology, uh, many of you know, theology is just a word that means the study of God. Theology is what you understand to believe tr- to, and believe to be true about God. And I want you to notice in their prayer, again, I think this is so instructive to us, I want you to notice where these early Christians began in their prayer. Notice where they started. They didn't start by asking God for their requests. It's actually not where they started. Here's where they actually start their prayer. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of, our, of, uh, uh, the mouth of your servant, our father, David. Now, let me just ask you real quick. What is all of that? What, what, what are they doing here? What, what is this? Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth. You spoke through the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of your servant, David. And then they go on to, they actually go on to quote from Psalm chapter two from the Old Testament. What is all of this? Well, here's what I want you to notice. What they're praying is they're praying theology. That's what they're doing. They're be, rather than beginning with their own requests, they're actually starting with a foundation of who God is and what they believe to be true about him. I want you to notice, first off, they, they start their prayer by calling God Sovereign Lord. They begin with Sovereign Lord. Now, some of you guys know this. There's a lot of different ways you can begin a prayer. There's a lot of ways you can address God. Uh, Jesus is going to say, uh, teach us to pray our Father, right? So sometimes we begin our Father. Uh, sometimes we pray uh, Lord Jesus. Sometimes we pray Father in heaven. 
And all those things are right and all those things are good. But these Christians start with sovereign Lord. Now, why do they start this way? Why do they start this way? Well, can I tell you what I believe is going on? I believe that they're connecting a theological truth of what they believe about God to the immediate circumstance that they're facing. So why is it that they would pray sovereign Lord? Well, uh, sovereign Lord is actually a term that is literally one Greek word. It's the word despotes. And it literally means supreme authority, absolute ruler. That's what it means. So sovereign Lord is basically this idea. God is in charge. And there's nothing that's gonna happen that's outside of his will. And there's nothing that can thwart his will. And there's nothing that can, there's nothing that happens that's outside of what God sovereignly controls. That's the idea of sovereign Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but it seems to me that this is an aspect of God that is particularly pertinent to the circumstance that they find themselves in right now. Here, there's the rulers and authorities, and they're saying, don't you ever speak the name of Jesus again. And if you speak the name of Jesus, then we're gonna, you know, we're gonna persecute you or arrest you or hurt you or harm you. And what do they pray? They pray, sovereign Lord. You're the one who's in control. None of these things that are happening are outside of your hands. They're praying their theology. Then they follow it up with this. You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Now, let me just ask you a quick question. Where are they getting these ideas about who God is and what God is like? They say, God, you're the creator. You made everything. Where, where are they getting these ideas? Are they just making these things up? Are they just saying, we, we, were, we hope that these things are true about you? No, 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 no. They're getting these things from what God has already revealed about himself in the Hebrew scriptures, in the Bible, in the Old Testament. They're praying theology. And then they go on to quote directly from Psalm chapter two. They actually quote the Bible as they pray. You guys, I think that this gives us a lot of insight, a lot of insight into how these people saw the importance of scripture in instructing and informing the way that they prayed. I actually think it's really important. Scripture is what informed and instructed how they prayed. Uh, maybe I could put it to you this way. Eugene Peterson uh, wrote a great book. The book is called Answering God. And I love what he said. He said this. He said, true prayer is not talking to God. It's answering God. I actually think that's really helpful. You're like, what does he mean by that? True prayer is not talking to God. It's answering God. Well, maybe I could put it to you this way. Just think about this with me for a minute. How did you learn how to talk? How did you learn how to do that? How did I, how did I learn how to, how did any of us learn how to talk? And here's the answer. I mean, simply put, someone spoke first, right? Someone spoke to us first. Your parents spoke to you, your family spoke to you. And it's only when someone spoke first that you learn how to talk, that you learn how to speak, you learn how to kind of mimic those things and respond to those things. Now, here, here's the, the, the kind of the, the connection. How do we learn how to pray? How do we learn how to pray? And here's the answer. Someone spoke first. God spoke God spoke first. He speaks first. And we learn to pray by learning not how just to talk to God, but how to respond to what he has already said. How has God spoken first? God has revealed who he is and what he is like through his word. That's how he's done it. And you know, here at the Medina East Campus, we talk about this all the time. We don't believe that the Bible is just a historical artifact. We believe that the Bible is God's revelation to us. It is God speaking first, telling us who he is and what he is like, and consequently who we are and what the story of all things is. And so what is prayer? Prayer is responding to what God has already said. Uh, maybe here's another way to think about it. Let's say that you and I were to grab coffee sometime and uh, we were sitting across the table and over coffee, you spent a half an hour, 45 minutes pouring out your story to me. 
and you just told me, you revealed to me all the events of your life. You told me about the highs and the lows and the, the big moments and the hard moments and the happy moments. And let's just say you poured yourself out. And let's say the whole time that you were talking, I just sat across the table and I, just, I was just looking at you the whole time you were telling your story, just taking it in. You're telling me the story. And let's say that after a half an hour, 45 minutes of doing this, um, I look back at you and I don't respond and I don't comment on a thing that you just said. But instead, I just go on and talk about myself and tell you what I wanted to talk about or whatever, that's kind of thing. Now, not only would that be insensitive and probably really awkward for you, right? But it also would be, it also would be relationally immature. And here's what I'm saying. All I'm trying to say is this. When we go to God and all we say is, God, give me this. God, do this for me. God, help me with this. God, and we never respond to anything that he has already revealed to himself in the scriptures. I think in some ways that's relationally immature. You know, relationships, are, they go two ways. And I think that in many ways, part of praying is praying what we see in God's word. That's actually what's going on right here. That's what's going on. What do they, what do they pray? They pray Psalm 2. They say, God, you spoke through the Holy Spirit. You, already, you spoke first. You already said something. And what you said, and they quote Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Now, why do they they quote Psalm 2? Well, I'm not gonna get too deep into this, but Psalm 2 is basically all about this. It's about how all of the nations of the world and all of the leaders of the world will rage against God's Messiah. But God will eventually overcome, that God is sovereignly in control. And what they're saying is, God, you said that this would happen. You said that the nations, that the leaders of the nations would conspire against you. And that is still happening, they're saying, in our circumstance. And by the way, to those of us in the room today, it's still happening today. We shouldn't be surprised. God said it was going to happen. What are they doing? They're praying theology into their circumstances. And it's only after they do this that then they move on to their request. So how does this instruct us? How is this instructive to you and to me? Well, I think it means this. I think it means that for those of us who follow Christ, we should really know our Bibles. We should know our Bibles, not just to gain more information, but to gain more relational understanding of who God is, that we can respond to. Tracy talked a little bit earlier about these classes that we offer. What is the Bible? What do Christians believe? These are intended to help you grow in your knowledge of scripture, not just so that you know more about the Bible, so that you know God better and that you can actually uh, interact in a relationship with him. But it's only after laying a scriptural foundation that then they make their request. So I want you to notice the request of their prayer, the request. So here's what it says. Verse 29, now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand and heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now, I want, you to notice, um, I want you to notice not just what they pray for, but first off, I want you to notice what they don't pray for. Do you notice what they don't pray for? Uh, they don't ask for pretty much any of the things that I would typically ask for if I was in their circumstance. Uh, they don't ask for protection. They don't say, God, please save us from this circumstance. They don't ask for vengeance against their enemies. They don't pray for safety. That's not what they ask for. And by the way, I don't think it's wrong to pray for those things. I think it's fine to pray for those things. But what I want you to notice is that that was not their priority. That was not their priority. What do they actually pray for? Well, there's a lot that could be said on this, but I love, I love these lines right here. Look what they say. They prayed, God, consider their threats and enable your servants. I love that. God, consider their threats and God, enable us, enable your servants to speak Boldly. I actually think that there's a couple things that are happening in their prayer. I think on one hand, one of the things that they're doing 
is they are releasing something to God. God, consider their threats. They're releasing it. They're saying, God, that's your problem. You're the, you're the king, you're the judge. So that, you know, whatever you do with them, that's up to you. Consider their threats, God. And then the second part is they're, they're, they're relying on God for something. What are they relying? God, give us boldness. Give us, we recognize that we have a response. So God, you deal with them and you help us. God, we're releasing them to you. They're not our problem. So God, give us what we need so that we can do the thing that you've called us to do. I love their prayer here. Rather than obsess over what their enemies might do to them, they focus on what they know God wants them to do for others. So they pray, God, please give us boldness. And they ask for that. These early Christians, they didn't just pray that God's will would be done. They prayed that God would use them to be conduits to accomplish his will on earth as it is in heaven. And so this is the request. The request to God is, God, help us to be obedient to what it is that you've called us to do. You deal with that circumstance. That's up to you. That's, that's, we're releasing that to you, but we're asking you that you would help us to walk in obedience to what you have for us, which leads to the final thing. And I want you to notice this last thing, which is the result of their prayer. So how does God answer this prayer? How does God respond to this prayer that this community of people are praying towards? And I love this next part. Look how the Bible says. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. So that's kind of crazy. I don't know exactly what that meant. Maybe there was an earthquake, like a very localized earthquake that took place in that moment. I'm not quite sure what happened there. But the Bible says the whole place was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God boldly. Again, I want you to notice how God didn't answer their prayer. Uh, God does not, he actually does not protect them from, from future persecution. In fact, you're actually gonna find the book of Acts, persecution doesn't get easier, it actually gets harder. It increases, it doesn't decrease in the book of Acts. God doesn't remove them from a challenging circumstance. That's not what happens. But what does God give them? Well, the Bible says that through the Holy Spirit, God provides them boldness to continue to do the thing that he has asked and called them to do. So what does this mean for you and I? Well, can I just say, what I don't think this means is I don't think it means that when we pray together that we should expect our own personal earthquake every time. I don't think that's it. I have never been part of a prayer meeting. I'd be kind of cool, but I've never been part of a prayer meeting that ended in an earthquake. Um, I will say though, I was thinking about this. I was part of a prayer meeting one time and it was raining outside. And after we were done praying, like as soon as we said, amen, there was this crack of lightning and this massive, like, uh, just like roar of thunder that shook the, the room that I was in. And I couldn't help but think of Acts 4. Like, it was the first thing I thought of. Like, it was almost like God was like, yes and amen. You know, it was like a really cool, cool moment. Not that God talks like that, but it was like a really cool thing. I'm not saying we should expect that. We could try it today if you guys want to, but I don't know if it's going to happen. Um, but here's what I do think it means. I think it means that, personally, here's what I believe this is showing us. I believe it's showing us that when we pray together, and when we pray in the way that we see this early church pray, that we can expect, we can, we can anticipate that the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is gonna give us what we need, maybe not always what we want, but the Holy Spirit is gonna give us what we need to be able to match the challenge and to match the, the, whatever it is that God has in front of us that's equal to the task. Here the Bible says that the Holy Spirit filled these people and they were able to speak with, they had a fresh empowerment by the Holy Spirit to, that matched the challenge and the circumstances that they faced. And I believe that's true for us too, that when we pray together in these ways, the Holy Spirit will give us what we need in that moment to face the challenge and to face the task 
that God has in front of us. So I think, man, what you see here is you see not just an example of an incredible community of prayer, but I think you see instructions and how we can also pray in the same ways. I'm asking the band to come up, and as we close out our time, I actually wanna end our time by, um, by actually asking just one question. There's one question that I wanna ask you to consider with me as we sort of end today. And I believe that this one question, I'll be honest with you guys, I've been thinking about this question all week. And when I wrote it down and I started thinking about it, I'll be honest with you, it, it's been messing with me a little bit. This question has been messing with me. And it actually has been challenging me in the way that I've been praying and the way I've been thinking about praying in the next couple of weeks and in, in, in just even kind of in the prayers that I, I pray with other people. So here's the question, and, and maybe it'll mess with you too. Here's a question I wonder. What would be different what would be different if God granted everything that we prayed for in the past 30 days? I just want you to think about this with me for a minute. What would be different, Medina East Campus? What would be different in your life? What would be different in our church? What would be different in our community? What would be different in our world? If God granted everything that we prayed for individually in our life groups as a church, what would be different if God granted everything we prayed for in the last 30 days? I'll tell you why it messed with me. I don't know the answer to that question, but I have a hunch. I have a feeling that if, if God was to answer everything that we prayed together in the past 30 days, we'd probably have a lot of blessed food. <laughs> we'd probably have some very merciful travels. The Browns would be going to the Super Bowl, right? <laughs> like without a doubt, if God was answering our prayers, right? And that's fine, but I wonder, I wonder, would it go beyond that? Would it stretch beyond that? How many people would actually know and follow Jesus if all of our prayers were answered over the last 30 days? How many unreached people groups would be reached? How many in the next generation would, would, be, would be following and submitting their lives to Christ? I just wonder, I just wonder. And you guys, I think that that question maybe could, could instruct and even propel the way we pray together in the next weeks and even the months to come. So why don't we put this sermon into practice and why don't we take a moment and let's pray together. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we just wanna say thank you that you've given us the great privilege to come to you in prayer. It's no small thing. And uh, we realize that the freedom that we have to pray and the liberty that we have, like Hebrews says, that we can come to you boldly came at a high price it's because you shed your blood and it's because you covered our sin that we can come to you boldly to your throne room. And Jesus, you said, you said that if two, two or three of us on earth agree about anything that we ask for in your name, it'll be done by your father, by our father in heaven. And Father, you said that where two or three of us gather, you're here in our midst with us. And Father, you are the one who told us, Jesus, you said that we should ask and we should seek and we should knock, that we should pray and we should not give up. So because of that, in light of that, I ask you, God, that you would make us, make our church, make our community one of prayer. I pray that you would help us, Lord, instruct us and guide us to pray big, bold, audacious prayers for your name and for your glory and for your sake. Lord, help us not just to pray as individuals, but help us to pray as a family, pray as a community that we can come to you and we can say, our Father, because you're our Father. And we can cry out to you as brothers and sisters, as sons and daughters, to the one who loves us and the one who cares for us. And Jesus, we pray that as we sing these songs together, that these songs themselves 
that they would be prayers that we bring, not just lyrics, these would be prayers that we would lift up in one harmony, that you would unify our voices together, that this would be a prayer that we bring to you. So God, thank you for the great privilege it is to be together as a community. We ask these things in Jesus' name.